Well, sequel money, monies, sequel movies can be a funny thing. They tell basically the same story over and over, just in a slightly different way. The details in a sequel will change a bit, but the basic message doesn't actually change from one sequel to the next. Because what happens is we find a message, a basic kind of underlying message that's really compelling, and then you get a sequel to sort of reproduce that message over and over and over again and enjoy it. I mean, think, think about it. Can Tom Cruise in Top Gun really be surpassed by the young hotshot? Like the details will change, but that's the same message, right? Can, can Matt Damon as Jason Bourne really be you know, taken out by the newest asset that the CIA has? No, the details change, but the, the plot underneath it is the same. Can, can Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone really be outsmarted by the neighborhood crooks? No, can, can Buddy the Golden Retriever in Air Bud actually miss the game-winning shot? It's like the, the details change in each of these, but it's the same underlying message in all of them. In fact, we actually have an entire channel devoted to this genre. It's called the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> the details change, but it's the exact same thing every time. And the only remaining question is, are they going to kiss on the doorstep or in the living room? Right, you see these things keep drawing us in, and the details, of course, change, but there's something about the similarity of the details that help you to see the same principle that's underneath it. Genesis 26 this morning is something of a sequel. It's, it's arranged in that way. It's the story of God's grace relentlessly pursuing Isaac, just like God's grace relently, relentlessly pursued his father, Abraham. And the triumph of God's grace is certain, but the author arranges these two stories in, in such a way as to draw our eyes to first see the similarities and then get underneath it and see what's the principle that's enduring here that I'm supposed to see in both of them. And so the basic message that, that we're intended to see from Genesis 26 is this, that God's grace reveals and transforms our hearts. God's grace reveals and transforms our hearts. And so in sequels, whether it be a movie that we've spoken of or in Genesis 26, seeing the similarities across them is helpful because then once you see the similarity, you can zoom in on the underlying principle that sort of carries the day. So, so let me just show you a couple of these uh, similarities that show us the, kind of the sequel nature of Abraham into Isaac, especially in Genesis 26. And I, th I think we have a chart on the screen to help see this. They both experienced a famine in the land. They both feared death because of their wife's beauty. They both lied about their wife. They were both rebuked by a pagan king for lying. They both prospered greatly after their moral failure. For both of them, their prosperity then led to conflict, Abraham with Lot and um, Isaac with the, the surrounding kings there, Abimelech and that. Then God reaffirms for both of them his blessing after the conflict. They both respond to God's reaffirmed blessing. Their response is to worship him by building an altar. And then after they worship, the surrounding people recognize God's blessing and say, come tell us more about this. So you see there's actually a great deal of similarity across the two of these where we see in both of your lives what we're supposed to see. It's a, it's a literary device to show the similarities and then zoom in on that underlying principle. God's grace reveals what's in our heart and then it transforms our heart. It's as if God is saying to Isaac, Isaac, I will be with you. 
just like I was with your father, Abraham. Isaac, I'll be with you in all circumstances. And this sequel, Isaac's life unfolds sort of in four acts. And in each of the acts, we see a different way that God's grace both reveals what's in our heart and transforms our hearts. All right, so four acts will sort of form our outline. And the first act of Isaac's life in chapter 26 of Genesis is the famine. So act one, Isaac's famine. Now, before I ask you to keep your copy of God's word open, I ask you to look back at it here, and we see in verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, like all sequels, there's similarity, but difference. The famine is the similarity, but Moses, in writing this, is clear to point out, well, it was actually a different famine than the one that Abraham experienced. It's like saying this, yes, Jason Bourne is dealing with another corrupt CIA official, but it's a different one this time. It's like saying Buddy in Airbud hit a game-winning shot, or did he kick the game-winning field goal this time? I don't really remember, but the underlying principle is sort of the, sort of the same carrying us through. And the point here that's being made is that these famines in our lives are recurring. As much as we'd like to tell ourselves they're not, they are. We'd like to think that, that normal life, what can be expected, is a sort of peace and prosperity and health and, and growing in wealth. But history tells us that's actually not normal, and that's the exact same thing the scriptures tell us as well. And what happens for us in living in the West and, and affluence and wealth, certainly compared to the rest of the world, no matter how much wealth we may have relative to the rest of America, what this does is it dulls our senses because we have more drugs for chronic pain, we have more facilities for those in dire need, and we have more disposable income for our pleasure of choice to numb ourselves to the pain of the world. Right, so living in wealth sort of dulls our senses to the recurring nature of these famines, how this is a big part of our life. And I could make a really, or take a really long time trying to make this point. I, I don't know that it's actually necessary, though, because each of you know that when you actually encounter a severe famine, or just suffering, we might call it, it is really, really terrible. It shakes you to your core. Whether it be a physical or a, a mental sickness, whether it be shattered relationships that you thought would never break, whether it be financial distress, whether it be unjust criticism, like when these things hit home for you, they rock you to your core. The fact of the matter is, throughout all the scripture and all human history, we see that real famines and proverbial famines, like I said, just call them suffering, are the absolute norm of our lives. So we better get busy building a foundation that will carry us through them because it's a matter of when, not if, we encounter them. And so the underlying message here in this first act of Isaac's life is that famines are often a grace of God to reveal how we've confused wants and needs. Well, let me say that in a little bit more succinct way if you're taking notes. Famines are often a grace where God reveals our confusion of wants and needs. 
The, the other night, I was, uh, I was watching The Price is Right with our kids. Uh, I, I discovered something this week I didn't know before. We were, we were looking for a show at night, and The Price is Right was on, and I thought The Price is Right only came on at 11 o'clock on weekdays. It was my favorite part of being sick as a kid. But what I found out is they now have The Price is Right at night, a separate show. And so we tuned in, and, and you know, it was the first part, and our kids had never seen it, so I'm explaining the structure of how this works. If you know, people come down, they bid on the item, couple go up, play a special game, then you go to the, the spinny thing, and then the showcase showdown after that. And, um, and they've got these, these Prada handbags, and you're supposed to guess the amount on them, right? And so our kids are like, 20 bucks. I'm like, more than 20 bucks. You know, it's like a $3,000 handbag. And, uh, and so then we get into this conversation of, well, Daddy, those are wants, not needs. I'm like, yes, those are wants, not needs. And, uh, you know, it's kind of cute in little kids to see, like, oh, this is good that we identify the difference between a want and a need. But in our own lives, it's a lot harder to identify when we've made that confusion than it is in the life of our kids, isn't it? There are things that we latch on to and we start to identify this as a need. It's probably more of a want. might be a good thing to desire. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it makes it hard to see that. And so in these seasons of famine, God gives us a grace to see, you know what, you've confused a want and a need here. And our, our wants are generally twofold in the famine, I think. Number one, I want it to go away, and number two, I want to know why it's happening. That, that's generally what our desire is. And what God does is he, he uses this famine in Isaac's life and gives incredible grace to him. He doesn't make it go away, and doesn't tell him why it's there, he actually gives him something better. He says, let me reorient your eyes, and what you think you need is not what you actually need. I'll give you what you actually need. Look at verse two of Genesis 26. Here's what he says. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. What was Isaac's plan in the famine? He's going to go down to Egypt. There's prosperity there. I know how to make this go away, he's saying. And God says, no, no, pause. Let me, see, let me show you your true need. You need to see my face to experience my presence in this. And I'm reaffirming, Isaac, that I will be with you at all times. You need to refuse Egypt's prosperity, Isaac, and look ahead to a distant promise and an unforeseen promise and an unrealized promise, but know that I will be with you. What, what does Isaac do in response? As God is sort of correcting him, he's in the process of changing his heart here. Look at verse six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Was that five words there? Really simple thing. But do you see what Isaac does? He obeys. He wants to go down to Egypt. It looks better there. I can fix this. He says, no, stay where you're at. I'm gonna be with you. So he obeys. And here we see in process God transforming Isaac's heart. And surely it was hard for him. Like, let's make no bones about it. That had to be an incredibly difficult step of faith for him. For those of you who have been through a difficult famine, a difficult season of suffering, and you've experienced God changing you through it, you know how brutal it can be. Like there's a chisel being taken to your insides day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. It's like, when will this ever stop? It's really hard. It's like part of you is dying slowly. 
but we see it in, at work here in Isaac's life. Thinking about this change process and having to look further ahead, it, it reminds me, if I can give sort of a, a trivial example here, of when I first went to college. I was excited to have the opportunity to play basketball, and so you, know, you show up in August and everybody gets back and the guys who have been on the team have you know, bulked up in the off-season with all their weightlifting and the, the freshmen are there kind of strutting their stuff, showing off you know, their, their new Jordans and kind of want, well, they want everybody to see how good they are, right? And so I hadn't lifted like, I'd maybe lifted weights like five times before I got to college. So the first thing they do is they throw my butt in the weight room and you know, I start lifting right away. And for those of you who've done any degree of exercise, you know that if you go from never ever having lifted weights once in your life to straight into a collegiate lifting program, it's not a good thing. Your body does not appreciate that. And so there were weeks on end where I didn't think I could scratch my own ear. Like, my, our, my muscles just didn't go that way anymore. They were so tight and so tense. And so then we would go from lifting into open gym and I'm wanting to show everybody like, yeah, like from Indiana, like I know how to shoot. And, I'm not joking, it was two weeks before I could even hit the rim. I'm not talking about making any shots, just drawing iron. Like I couldn't even get a brick. Air balls, backboard only. It was, and, and so these guys, they literally told the coach, like, coach, you said this guy could help us. Like he wouldn't make my high school team, much less the college team. Like wh what in the world are you doing bringing this guy in? And so here I am, 700 miles from home. I know one soul on the campus. And the thing that's supposed to be my identity and kind of give me a home and a place here has been ripped away and everybody thinks I'm just awful. Like, it was really a difficult time. And you look back, you're like, yeah, you're, you're fine, Justin. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. As a 19-year-old, that was really difficult. Like, I don't understand what's going on. Is it really worth it to hit the weight room here? Because I know if I don't lift, I could go out there and start shooting right away and I could make those shots and everything would look better. I had to trust my coaches that they knew in the long run this was worth it. I didn't play a lick my whole freshman year. But my sophomore year, I got to start a few of the games. By my junior year, most of them. And looking back, it makes sense. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that I trusted my coaches and kept doing that, even though it made life really, really terrible for a while there. I think what suffering does in these famines is it reveals for all of us that we have a heavenly father that's way better than any basketball coach. Sometimes we don't know why we're lifting the weights that we are right now. But he's using it for something. And of course, in the moment, it's like, I feel like I've lost myself, and I don't have a place here, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But in that recognition, I can start to say, Lord, I need your help. Help me to trust you. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that all of our suffering, he calls it light and momentary, is achieving something. It's accomplishing something, an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond anything we could imagine. He says it's working it's not wasted. My friend Ken Rudolph would say, God never wastes the tears of his saints. So what God gives us is the testimony of scripture and the testimony of saints who've gone before to remind us that it's not wasted because in the moment we can't see it. So Genesis 26 reminds us that God intervened in Isaac's life in the famine, the barren land. And in chapter 25, God had intervened when there was a barren womb. And in both of those famines, God showed up. But we also have the example of other Christians who've gone before. I heard an interview the other day from a, a, a pastor who's been retired now. Pastor Tim Keller was a, a pastor in New York City, uh, retired some years ago. In about three years ago, he was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. 
And in the interview, he was talking about the difficulty of knowing that, you know, one scan might look okay, but there's really no guarantee the next one will be any better. He, he calls it scanxiety, because you can just never escape it. But he talked about how in the most difficult time, God was preparing him for something greater. I, I just want you to read in his words what, what he said about this recently. Here's what he said, and he starts out talking about the scans. He says, you, you know that it doesn't really matter how good the last one was. This next one could show that it's out of control. And this is gonna sound like an exaggeration, but my wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer, never. When it comes to prayer, I really thought that I had a good prayer life. And when I broke through to another dimension, I realized, my goodness, my prayer life wasn't very good at all. Knowing that you're really going to die changes the way you look at your time the way you look at God, the way you look at your spouse. There's nothing like the Psalms to teach you. The way I deal with anxiety is I keep my Psalms up, I keep my exercise up. So friend, if you're in the middle of a famine now, I would say encourage you with the, the words of Pastor Keller, get in the Psalms, receive the songbook and the full range of emotions, and like him, seek to exercise and trust that the Lord will take care of you. In the famine, God reveals in our heart that we've confused wants and our needs, and by taking it to him in prayer, his grace not only reveals what's there, but transforms our hearts to see that his abiding presence is better than improved circumstances. That's act one in Isaac's life, the, the famine. We've moved now to act number two, Isaac's fear. Pick up in, in verse seven. I'd encourage you to look back at your copy of God's word. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Now, we recognize on the, on the chart earlier that, that Abraham had the same fear two times and responded in disobedience two times. And so two times with Abraham, one time with Isaac, some commentators have speculated there's meant to see even a correlation of they've kind of in a threefold way had lying based on their fears, perhaps a bit similar to how Peter had a threefold denial based on his fears. Now, whether that's meant to be there or not, the clear emphasis is on the chronic weakness of God's people, that he is using weak vessels, you, me, Christians throughout all history. It's not our strength that marks us to God. And so what we're tempted to do, I think, is one of two things. We're tempted to either deny our weaknesses, like, no, no, that, I, I can do this, or we wallow in our weaknesses and let them, to paralyze, let them paralyze us. But both of those are actually the wrong response, right? Our weaknesses are meant to highlight God's grace. We shouldn't be seeing them as like, I'm limited based on my weakness. No, I said, through weakness, God shows up and does an incredible work. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul would write that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So by 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul would again write that God's grace, grace works best in our weakness. Right, so, so don't deny your weakness. You can own it. But don't wallow in it either as if it doesn't, uh, you know, prohibits you from serving God. Just say, no, this is my weakness and God will work through it. That's what we ought to do. Recognize God equips those he's called. 
If he's called you to do something, he is going to equip you as you're going. He doesn't look down like looking for the all-star free agents and say, oh, I'm gonna go sign them to my team. He says, no, I see your weakness and I'm calling you and I'll equip you as you go. So in Genesis 26, how is it that God uses Isaac in his weakness, in his fears? It's through the most unlikely of circumstances, but look at verse eight and we'll see. It says this, when he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. So Abimelech looks out the window and he sees them laughing together. And The Hebrew word laughing has a root form in a word that we would also translate to caress. So we're not exactly sure what this was going on between them, but whatever it was, it was clear that they were married. There's no doubt about that. And the rebuke of the foreign king is sort of interesting, isn't it? The pagan king, in his unrighteousness, corrects the man of God who should be righteous but isn't. And what it reveals is that Isaac's fear was irrational. This guy was actually gonna do the right thing here. But at the exact same time, these Philistines had a terrible reputation. Like, they were known to be brutal. And so I think it tells us something really interesting about our fears here, that generally our fears are somewhat grounded in reality. Philistines are bad dudes. But then they kind of spiral out of control and take on an irrational component that grips us and pushes us to make really unwise decisions. Like, I know that's, that's, I can tell you that about my fears, and I think that's a a general thing. It starts in reality, and then it goes from there, and it takes off. It's like, how did I end up all the way down there? So Isaac, he feared death. He idolized control. He would sacrifice anything to get it. And here's how God's grace shows up in Isaac's fear. In his fear, it reveals an idol in his life that's driving him to make really bad decisions. What's what's the idol? He's idolizing control. I've got to be able to be in control of these circumstances. And we see the path of idolatry sort of being revealed here. Of course, we we can idolize control and it can show up in a whole host of ways, right? It can show up in your finances. I idolize control, so I I make these bad decisions. Or I I can idolize control in the political realm And so I become just totally controlled by things that I really ought not be controlled by. The only thing I can talk about, the idol of control can influence our our relationships, where we start using people instead of serving people. The idol of control undergirds much of our anxiety. I have to be able to control. You see how this is just pervasive. It touches everything. But the thing about idolatry is this. It always takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and it always costs you more than you intended to pay. It always does. And so that's why John, in his, his first epistle, 1 John, he would close, uh, 1 John 5, 21, with simple, simple closing to the people he's writing to. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Because they're incredibly destructive, and it's hard to see them. And so God, in his grace, allows us, through our fears, to reveal what's underneath them. Like this guy would give up his wife, lie about her, turn her over to these Philistine guys that are terrible guys, he thinks. Like, that's craziness. What are you doing, man? Like, you're called to to love and protect your wife, not serve her up to save your own hide. 
He said, I would never do that. I mean, Isaac, my goodness. What a terrible husband. But this is how idolatry works. You think, I would never do that. But this idol slowly works its way and grabs more of your heart and more of your heart and more of your heart. And when you think you're at a spot, like, man, I'm not, I wouldn't do that. Paul says to you in 1 Corinthians 10, that's exactly the moment of your weakness. You're right where Satan wants you. If you hear me say this, you think, oh, Justin, there's not something like that in my life right now. Paul would have a word. <laughs> he would have a word. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. And he follows it with, but God is faithful. And there's a way out. So fear is a grace because it reveals the idol in your heart. What is it that I'm, I'm idolizing here? But how does the grace go beyond revealing the idol to go on and transform it? How does that happen? It's through prayers that lead us back to the gospel. So, so it might look something like this. You say, God, I don't know why I desire control like this. I, I, I don't quite understand what's going on, but I confess to you, I do. And, and I confess, God, that I depend more on, on my control than on your sovereign control. And God, I confess I'm tempted to make sacrifices to get control instead of trusting in your son's perfect sacrifice. And God, I confess that, that you really do care for the lilies of the field and you really do care for the birds of the air. And I confess that you gave your son for me and somehow, God, I don't understand. I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm tempted to think you may not give me everything I need. You might withhold something from me. So God, please give me your grace to trust you and to put this idol to death. Because all that is is prayer of honesty to God, getting back to the gospel, saying, God, I know that in your son and offering him up on the cross, Romans 8, 32, he who spared not his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's how grace reveals what's in our heart and transforms it through our fears. That's the second act of Isaac's life. Now we move to the third act. Act three, Isaac's prosperity. Take a look back at verse 12, and here's what we read. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich, and he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. So catch, this is a pretty remarkable blessing, right? A, a hundredfold would have been a great harvest at any time, much less in the midst of a famine. Like God is clearly blessing this guy. And he's got all these flocks coming in as well. Like things are going really well. In fact, in, in my research this week, it, it was kind of interesting. I found this old rabbinical saying. The, the rabbis had these sayings, kind of a, um, a, a, a euphemism of sorts. And, and here's what they, they would say. Rather the dung of Isaac's mules than all Abimelech's gold and silver. Like, this guy was so rich, we'd rather hang out at the manure pile with his goats than to be in the palace with this king. That's how wealthy he was. Kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. Not the most attractive, but they said it. Anyways, there's a quick side note to see in this bit, right? In the famine, God promised his presence he says, this is the blessing I'm going to give to you, and it's what you actually need. We talked about that. But in this scenario, God actually brings great prosperity to Isaac. 
Like the passage goes out of its way to, to highlight that over and over, right? It says there was a blessing, he became rich, and then it says very wealthy, even so much that the Philistines envied him. It's like a fourfold iteration to help us see how significant the blessing was. But that's not what was promised either to Isaac or to us, that kind of prosperity. God promises his presence. And many people in this world, many pastors in this world, will tell you that the prosperity is what God has promised. And you need to know that's simply not promised in the Bible to Christians at all times. It's not there. His presence is what is promised. And his blessing is way bigger than any material prosperity. So we need to learn to see his blessing in all seasons, not just the ones that we like. So Isaac, Isaac's prospered quite a bit, but his life is about to get a lot tougher even after things have gone well. Maybe you can re relate to that. Things go well for a bit, and then all of a sudden the wheels fall off. Look at verse 15 with me. Here's what it says. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wealth that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. Bimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you're much mightier than we. So we pick up Isaac, and it kind of in between a rock and a hard place. He gets kicked out of the city, where there's the safety, the security, it's hostile, he can't be there. He's kicked out to the countryside, but there's no water for him in the countryside because all the wells have been backfilled. On top of it, he presumably had land in the city, which would have been sort of equivalent to a retirement, and he seems to have lost that too. So if you're Isaac, you're thinking, God, you said you would bless me, and things got better for a minute here, but this is like a really, really bad situation. What's going on? So what we see is that the gaining and the losing of the prosperity is both the grace of God to reveal something to him. It reveals, first off, he says, God, I, Isaac, I'm still with you. I'm blessing you. You see it in some of these ways. Don't forget that. But by removing it, it's also a grace to say, all the material prosperity in the world isn't what you actually need. And you need to see that and be reminded of that. So, so Isaac doesn't mope. He doesn't throw a pity party. They get busy digging these wells. Now, historians tell us that these wells would have been somewhere between 20 yards deep on the shallow end and 50 yards deep, half a football field. Big, big wells. So even with their whole entourage, this is a month-long project per each well. Like this is a, a big undertaking, a lot of sweat equity going into these guys. And they get to the first one, and look at verse 20. We're just going to highlight the names of these wells, because you heard about the fighting over them. Verse 20, they call it Esek. That's, that's what they call it, because that well means contention. And then in verse 21, they title the well Sitna, which means hostility. So if I'm Isaac, I'm saying, God, you blessed me, I got all these things, got kicked out of the city, lost my retirement, went out to the wilderness where there was nothing going on, we worked hard for months at a time, and all you've given me is contention and hostility. Not exactly what I was looking for from you, God. And they get to verse 22, and they, they name the well Rehoboth, or open spaces. God has finally given us some open space where we can go and we can flourish. I see that he's still with us. And maybe your life feels a bit like Isaac's, where things are going well for a bit, and then they're not, and you just think, gosh, can't I just catch a break here? Like, can't we just dig up one well and get to keep that one? It's awfully discouraging when it goes that way. Maybe God blesses you with, with a spouse that you've been praying for, or children you've been praying for, 
And then something gets sideways and life seems 10 times harder with them than it was before them. Because it's not supposed to be this way. Maybe you finally, you finally become content in your singleness. And then your best friend gets married and it opens up that whole wound again. Maybe you get the job you've wanted. It's got upward mobility, the pay is better, the benefits are better, but your boss is just constantly breathing down your neck and the, the stress is twice what it ever was before and you wish you could go back to making 40% less when life was simple again. There's all kinds of ways we see this. But I do tell you, in the book of Genesis, doesn't it seem like on every single page of Scripture is the most relatable stories we could find? Like on first glance, it feels kind of old and distant, like 4,000-year-old book, what exactly is going on, how does this apply to us? And when you really dig in, it's like, oh my goodness. Like it's the same people dealing with the same kinds of things and the same faithful God whose grace is relentlessly pursuing us. Incredibly relatable. Isaac recognizes along the way that he wanted the prosperity, he got it for a bit, but after a while he starts to see it's God's presence that I actually need. And so maybe the most important lesson for Isaac to realize in this whole bit is, Isaac, you are a, a stranger, you are an alien. This is not your home. It, it probably would have been easy for Isaac Easy for us to quote Psalm 20 and verse 7, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Easy to quote that when it's going well, isn't it? Things fall apart. You feel like you had the prosperity and then the Lord takes it away. It's a lot harder to keep quoting that verse and singing that song. But the removal of the prosperity was actually a grace because it reveals in Isaac a heart that's clinging to something besides the presence of God. So, so let's get practical on it. What does it look like for God to reveal that in our heart, that we're clinging to something, namely prosperity, more than him? And how does God's grace transform our heart through it? What does that look like? And I would suggest it's a twofold process for you. The first thing is this. Recognize prosperity is temporary. Second thing, leverage prosperity for eternity. How does God transform our heart through our prosperity? One, you recognize prosperity as temporary, and two, you leverage your prosperity for eternity. And you could think about this in financial terms if you want. It's not wrong to do that, but it's much broader than that because God prospers us in all kinds of ways. And in all of them, we know it's not going to last forever. Right, so, so you might think of it in a financial term, where you say, man, I'm, I recognize it's temporary, I won't have it forever, so as long as the Lord gives this to me, I want to leverage it for eternity, and I'm going to try to give a quarter of a percent more this year than I did last year, or a half a percent more, or one percent more, or something like that. You say, here's how I can leverage this for eternity. But maybe it's not a financial sense you understand this, and you say, God has prospered me in relationships in my neighborhood. I don't exactly know why, but it seems like every time we try to strike up a conversation, we're, things are just going well, there's people coming over to the house. Well, then I, I recognize this may not last forever, and I want to leverage it for eternity. So instead of just being the party house, we're going to strive to be the revival house, where people know when they come to our house, they will never leave without me asking them, hey, how can I pray for you this week? If there's a youth event coming up, they will always be invited to Nerf Wars, there's a women's event coming up. They will always be invited to the paint pour. They know that I am regularly inviting them to church. And even though they've told me no 10 times, I'm going to keep inviting them. 
because I don't know how long God will prosper me with neighborhood relationships, so I will leverage them for eternity as best I can. Maybe it's a different thing. Maybe God has prospered you with time. Like maybe you're on the younger end, like high schoolers, you're gonna have a, a lot of time this summer most likely. Or maybe you're at the other end and you're in retirement. Say, God has prospered me with more time than what I anticipate having at a different point in my life. So I recognize this is temporary. I'm not going to have it forever. But as long as I have it, I'm going to leverage it for eternity. And so I'm going to see, are, are there widows that I could go help? And I could go help to mow their yard and take care of their, their shrubs for them. And I could really do up the landscaping nice because they loved when they could do it themselves and they just don't have the health to do it anymore. I'm going to come over and I'm going to see, is there a way that I can help out at the church or at Northwest Community Park or in any other number of ways? But I, I recognize it's temporary. I leverage it for eternity. And you know what the icing on the cake is? You want to take this beyond, oh, that was a nice little sermon idea and actually press it into deep transformation? Talk to a brother or sister about it. Confess to them. Say, look, I see the Lord has prospered me in this way right now and I want it to reveal God's grace to reveal the idol in my life, the possible idol, and I want to be transformed by it. So will you pray for me that I will recognize it's temporary and leverage it for eternity, and will you ask me how it's going? But that's where it gets real, isn't it? Like anybody can nod their head, hmm, good point, pastor. That, that's not hard to do. But where it actually gets real, the rubber meets the road, say, you know what, I really want to walk in obedience here. I need your grace, God. I'm going to walk in community. And, and that's where the church becomes like true biblical community, not just a social club, Right? We're actually linking arms to walk in faith towards Jesus and leverage our lives for the advance of the gospel, whatever that means. Boy, may that be true of us. May we be genuinely growing through relationships, that together we delight and serve, and together we send and get sent out. And if somebody asks you that, man, pray for them and ask them, because that's a huge step of faith for them to do that. And remember as you do it, James 5 the fervent prayer of a righteous man is very effective while it's working. God will use your prayers. There's a lot for us to see in how prosperity is a, a grace to reveal and transform our hearts. That's the third act. And in between the third and the fourth act of Isaac's life, there's a bit of an intermission of sorts. Because we're, we're kind of transitioning here. It's like the lights go down and they put little writing up on the screen on a black backdrop before it goes to the very end kind of what it looks like in, in my mind's eye. Look at verse 23, and we see what happens in this intermission. We read, From there, this is he, Isaac, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, there, Isaac's servants dug a well. What do we see again right there? The same Emmanuel promise, the reaffirming of the blessing to God's chosen people. Starts the chapter there, comes to the intermission there. It's kind of a bookend. And what does Isaac do in response as God has shown us? I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to promise my presence and my blessing. He responds with worship by building an altar. And then in obedience, by digging a well. And it's a consistent pattern across all of it. Where he says, God, your grace has revealed and transformed my heart in the famine. God, your grace has revealed and transformed my heart in my fears. 
God, your grace has shown up, has revealed and transformed my heart and my prosperity, and I will worship you, and I will obey you, because you have shown yourself to me. And in the last act, what happens is we see, we see God's grace pushing Isaac out, and it impacts his relationships with others. Look at verse 26 as we pick up the fourth act, Isaac's relationships. Sorry, I don't want to read from verse 26. We're getting tied on time. Let me summarize the last section for you here. I got, I got, got moving there. There's two interactions in this last bit. Okay, Isaac talks to Esau, his brother, or his son, rather. Sorry about that. And this pagan foreign delegation of Abimelech and Ahuzeth and, and Phicol, it's like a, a king and his top advisor and, and the commander of the military. So let's, let's start with the second one, with his interaction with his son Esau. Look at verse 34. Here, here's where we can pick this up together. Uh, this is the second of these two interactions. He says, Isaac says the following, or Moses does rather. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the uh, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So after Isaac experiences the grace of God, he worships, walks in obedience, what we see with his son Esau is he makes every possible attempt to live life in his own way, by his own means, and get what he wants in his own timing. He takes multiple wives, forbidden by God, goes and takes them from the Hittites, evil, wicked empire. Notice the difference. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, Abraham said, no, no, take nobody for a wife here. Go all the way back, long journey, find Rebecca. Esau says, dad, I'm not doing that. These women are beautiful, I want one of them. And for the rest of his life, he makes life bitter and difficult for his parents. It's an absolute picture of rejecting God. Saying, I don't want you, I want my way. But the other interaction with this Philistine delegation tells a very different story. Very different story. Notice a couple of things. Look at verse 27. They show up, and Isaac is a little bit grumpy. He basically says, why are you guys coming to pester me? Don't you hate me? Remember when you kicked me out of the city? Like, get out of here. We don't want to talk today. But what do they say? They say, we see that the Lord is with you. Now, that word Lord is really interesting because it's not a generic term for God. They're not saying, we see things have gone pretty well for you. We want to be friends. It'll be good for us. No, that word for the Lord right there, that's the word Yahweh, the covenant-making God, the God of the Bible. They're saying to Isaac, we see that the one true God is with you and we want to know about him. Will you tell us about him? And then it goes on and they make this oath and it's a little bit unclear with the oath language, like what exactly is the deal? What are we supposed to make of it? But I think the key verse for us to understand what's going on with the oath is in verse 29. So, so look there. And here's what Isaac says in verse 29. He says, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Or the, the literal more wooden translation, you now may Yahweh bless. This looks like a genuine conversion. They come saying, we know the one true God is with you and we want to know about him. And they make an oath together, some kind of agreement, some kind of a prayer it seems. And after that, Isaac says, God's going to bless you now. Seems to be saying, you're his people. And they, they dig this well. They make an altar. They call it 
Beersheba. The oath. To commemorate. It's like, yeah, here's the point where you became one of God's children. Here's where you got saved, we might say today. And so there's two groups that see God's face. There's the foreign rulers and there's Isaac's son, Esau. One responds in faith, one doesn't. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not sure what you believe about God, you've been thinking about it and you've been wrestling, maybe you've been reading stuff or, or watching some videos on YouTube, well, I want to encourage you this morning, respond like this Philistine delegation did who came and saw, we see that there's actually one true God who makes a covenant with people, who enters into human history, who sent his son, Jesus. Like maybe they didn't get all of that, the New Testament part, but we've got it. So I'll tell you, this is the same God, Yahweh, who sees people on a path to self-destruction. And we're tempted, we desire to kind of build our own castles and our own kingdoms that'll get us through the day. And our greatest need is that we would have a relationship with God and through Jesus, who came to this earth to die for our sins, to bring us back to God, you can have a relationship with him. You simply say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've tried to do things my own way instead of your way. And I know that you died on the cross. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins so I can have a relationship with you. Be like those Philistine guys and hear that message and respond in faith. If you've got questions about it, like, I, Justin, I don't quite know what all those words mean. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. If you're a Christian here, if you're a Christian, there's something for you in this as well. You, you put yourself in Isaac's shoes, he's got some pretty legitimate reasons to question their sincerity. I tried to talk to you guys before and you kicked me out of the city and stole my retirement and sent me out where there were the countryside with no wells. I really don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. You get this Jesus talk, you can take it somewhere else, but I'm done with you. Would have been easy for Isaac to say, but he proclaims the gospel and they respond in faith. You scroll it back even further, these are the same guys Isaac lied to. So if you feel like maybe your failure to be the best Christian prevents you from sharing the gospel, Isaac would have understood that too. I lied to these guys, I was skeptical, I didn't think God would actually work in their lives, they were too bad for God to work in them. He says, nope, just see my grace moving Respond in faith, proclaim the gospel, and I will work. Parkson, it's so important that every single one of you recognize this, that as you leave these doors, you are sent on mission every single week. We talk about being an aircraft carrier gathered to here, here on Sunday. Each of you are fighter jets. You are sent out with a mission by God to take his gospel and proclaim it to all people that you come in contact with. So Peter in his, his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, would write, say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Great, that's who we are. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why I saved you, is what he says. You must be sent. And then that's why the song we, we sing, or in fact, we're gonna close with it today, has the, has the lyric, you've called us out of darkest night into your glorious light that we may sing the wonders of the risen Christ. Great enjoyment in the gospel is meant to be praised and it's meant to be shared. And we know that in all of life. You get a new job with a company that pays well, has great benefits, gives you more time off. You want to go tell everybody. It feels incomplete until you tell somebody how great this new company is, Right? Same thing with a restaurant or a movie. 
I was joking with the guys in the office the other day that Arnold Palmer, I don't know when I first discovered those drinks, but I have not shut up about them ever since. You probably get tired of me talking about them, but you, you really delight in something and it needs to be praised, it needs to be shared. It's the same thing with the gospel. To truly delight in it demands that we share it. You might be hearing me and thinking, Justin, I, telling people about Jesus isn't really part of my life right now. It's been a little while. I remember at one point I did that. It hasn't been recent. But I do love Jesus. I have followed him. I've given my life. How do I make sense of this? What does this mean for me? Well, let me suggest just a couple of ways maybe that God's grace might be revealing things in our relationships. Maybe God's grace is revealing that your heart isn't quite as amazed at his love as it once was. Maybe it's grown a little bit cold and you didn't quite realize it before. Maybe you're having something revealed to you that you really do believe the gospel, but you're not delighting in it. It's more facts to believe instead of affections that are gripping your heart. Maybe God is revealing in his grace that famines in your life have grabbed your attention or the fears in your life have grabbed your attention or the prosperity in your life has grabbed your attention. And his grace isn't quite as amazing as it used to be. If that's what he's revealing, then how does he transform our hearts in these relationships? Again, it's through prayer that takes us back to the gospel. A simple formula over and over. You simply say, God, your grace has revealed something in my heart that I didn't see before. While Pastor Justin was preaching, I started to see something I didn't know. He, I've seen that I'm not telling others like I should. Maybe I've lost sight of just how amazing your grace is, how relentless it is in pursuing me. So God, today, I pray you would help me to see your grace in fresh ways, in astounding ways that blow my mind, that you would keep pursuing me. And God, as I realize that, would you send me out as a bold and joyful witness to your grace? Friends, God's grace reveals what's in our heart, but doesn't just stop there. It transforms our hearts, and it sends us out on mission. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you would love us with an everlasting love, that you would call us out of darkest night. You would reveal the glories of your son, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. And you would send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and carry us as we go. So I ask this morning for myself and for everyone here that you would help us to see in our lives what your grace is revealing and how you intend by your grace to transform us. We ask for, for strength and eyesight to see those things, ears to hear from your spirit and humble hearts to be changed by your spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a couple minutes here.